the 809 Restaurant and Lounge in the heart of Inwood, New York City. Welcome to Inwood Artworks On Air, where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers and theater makers, and visual artists of all stripes who make their home in what we affectionately call Upstate Manhattan. I'm your host, Aaron Sims, and today we're turning our artist spotlight on visual artist Eva Nikolova. Eva is a Bulgarian-born visual artist and longtime Inwood resident who works in drawing, painting, printmaking, hand-drawn animation, and cameraless photography. She holds a BFA in painting printmaking from Southern Illinois University and an MFA in printmaking from Indiana University Bloomington. Go Hoosiers! Her work, which is in the permanent collections of the Temple University, the Amity Art Foundation, Manhattan Graphic Center, Arkansas State University, and the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center for the Arts has been exhibited nationally as well as in Germany, England, Canada, Scotland, and India. Nikolova is the recipient of over 20 scholarships, fellowships, grants, and awards, and has participated in fully funded residencies at Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, the Lake Colony, Brush Creek Foundation for the Arts, Vermont Studio Center, and the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council. We're going to talk about her work and so much more. But first, Eva, let me welcome you to In What Artworks On Air. Oh, thanks, Aaron. It's great to be here. So, how have you been? It's been a while since we've actually been able to be in the same room together. How are things faring for you right now? Um, you know, it's I I really can't complain. I think I've been rather lucky. Um, you know, given everything that um, was going on. You know, in March, I had COVID, but you know, I got over it. You know, kind of within the month. I lost some of my work, but then I gained more work. So, you know, I've been I've been busy and, you know, it's, yeah, I really can't complain. Just balancing it out. Right, you can. exactly. Yes, yes. So, you know, compared to many people that I know, you know, I've, I've done okay. <laughs> well, I think you do more than okay. You've been working consistently every time I try to get a hold of you. You're, you're, <laughs> you have another job or another project you're working on. So I want to dive right in. Um, about the type of work that you work on because um, you work in multiple mediums which I think is uh, people think well you're an artist you can do anything well not every artist works in every medium uh, but there's one medium I mentioned earlier that the layman uh, listener might not be so familiar with and it might sound a bit confusing or even impossible uh, can you tell us a little bit about how one creates cameraless photography Yes. So, um, you know, you are right that I do work in multiple media. You know, I work in, well, I've dabbled in animation, you know, painting, drawing, printmaking. But fundamentally, I kind of, for me, drawing is the lens through which I um, approach everything. But though procedurally, I'm very much a printmaker. You know, that's what I was trained in. And, uh, you know, for me, printmaking... Uh, is that it's a, I mean it's a general umbrella term that includes a lot of different uh, processes and techniques within it but overall uh, I think printmakers kind of share that spirit of experimentation and you know let me try this see what happens uh, and that's how I approach photography you know it's kind of like drawing on the one hand on the other hand it's uh, it's printmaking and uh, what drew me to chemigrams, and, you know, I can maybe later get uh, into that of, you know, why it kind of fits my concerns, which I really didn't realize in the very beginning. But it really combines the autographic medium, 
uh, or process of drawing and then, you know, kind of the supposedly objective process of photography. So what chemigrams involve is that they are, um, I mean, they're indisputably photographs because they're made with photographic materials. You have light-sensitive paper uh, and then uh, you change that light-sensitive paper by exposing it to uh, darkroom chemistry, developer and fixer. Uh, but you're doing that not through a camera, so there's no lens, there's no enlarger, there's no negative involved. You're doing it by directly applying uh, the darkroom chemistry onto it. So you're, essentially you are painting or you're drawing onto the light-sensitive surface. And in that sense, you're making a drawing, which is a photograph. <laughs> you know, confusing, I know, but that's also what makes it very thrilling. Now, where printmaking comes in is that in order to give structure to uh, the image, uh, you do that through the application of resists. And, you know, that's a concept that comes from printmaking. So basically you can use all these various substances and, uh, you know, there's no... <laughs> I mean, the only rule is that they uh, resist the chemistry and they erode uh, in particular ways. Uh, so you can use, I've used lipstick, I've used honey, peanut butter, um, you know, I've gone to residences and asked them not to clear out the fridge so that I can, you know, see what's there. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's basically, so you're drawing with these materials and then you are exposing the paper with the resist, with the substance on it, you're uh, exposing it to um, the fixer and the developer. Uh, alternately, and uh, as it gradually erodes, each one leaves its mark uh, on um, on the paper. So, in a way, it's a very it's kind of a very direct process, and it's also a very extremely indirect process because you know, unlike you can't take a paintbrush with a certain color on it and make a mark, you are creating the mark in this very um, you know indirect way. All the color even though you're working on black and white paper with black and white chemistry, uh, you do get color, but the color is the result of um, these uh, chemical interactions that you kind of have to control in order to get the color. So it's, um, it's a very thrilling way of working because you, um, unlike painting or drawing where you can paint over things or you can erase things here, you have no recourse. It's very, it's immediate and it's final. And so, you know, it kind of blends a gravity and an excitement to the process that I really enjoy. I have so many responses to that. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, first off, um, you bring up that it's a, a chemical reaction mm -hmm. in many ways. So you're a bit of a scientist uh, when, uh, it, when, it, when it comes to More like it. an alchemist, you know, not really a yeah. scientist. I mean, I really know nothing about chemistry. It's, you know, I was told not to do certain things because they may lead to, you know, like uh, fatal explosions or emissions of, you know, <laughs> deadly gases. And I follow those rules. But, Good. you know, I can't say I understand what's going on at the chemical level necessarily. So... Don't yes. mix the peanut butter with, <laughs> sorry, right. with, with, with the chocolate. Yeah, and definitely don't, you know, don't eat out of the same jar, yes. <laughs> yes. Pretty good advice, I think. Um, but the, the interesting thing to you also, at the end of it, you said there's no recourse for it. So you really, I have to say, it must be really freeing for your imagination yes. to, uh, to kind of let go a little bit because there's such control in yes. drawing and printmaking. Yes. And there's a lot less control when you're dealing with chemical substances mm -hmm. that perhaps your intention didn't lead you to some places, but maybe where it did lead you is something more revealing or, and perhaps uh, that unlocked some other ideas you had for the particular image you're working on. Uh, that's absolutely, that's absolutely right. And that's why I'm really, um, 
you know, so so addicted, I can even say, to that particular way of working because it's just, it's not, it's really, you're collaborating with the process. You can't impose your will on it as you can uh, with other media where, you know, there's a much more kind of linear relationship between your intention and the outcome here. Um, you don't, I mean, yes, you can foresee where it will take you, but, but never exactly. And so that's, uh, that's what keeps me engaged with it. Uh, it's, it's always new. It's always, it's always, it's exciting. I mean, it's, um, I cannot visualize exactly what I'll have. And, um, yes, it does lead me to other places. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's really, yeah, that, that's why, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing because otherwise I, I'm kind of very controlling, you know, it, um, and I kind of gain control quickly of a medium, of a process, and then I start getting a little disengaged because I'm no longer able to surprise myself. Um, and it becomes more intellectual and it's not as sensual as um, it was in the beginning. Whereas with, um, with alternative photography, I find that, you know, I can retain that sense of initial excitement, you know, throughout. I've been working with chemigrams now for about 10 years and it still feels new every time I do it. So that's, yeah. That's amazing. It's it's so wonderful to be able to have that kind of blank slate and, mm -hmm. and, and know that there's going to be something that you're going to have to give over yourself unto. Uh, and then there will be, I mean, there will ultimately be it's your decision when to finish it, or when yes. something is finished, or maybe it's never finished, depending on what, how, depending on your point of view and how you how you view your own work. Um, but uh, it's also interesting too is saying you can also use that image over and over again to create multiple chemograms, make variations on that theme. Um, well, yeah, you, you can. Um, you you know this is a process where there are a lot of disasters and you know with a painting you know we can say well no it's never finished you know I'll put it aside I'll come back to it you know I'll paint over it you know I'll you know with with this you can't you know at some point the photographic paper is exhausted you know it's either been affected by the developer or the fixer you know there's nowhere for you to go it's done and. Um, you know, the process does take a lot of casualties. You look at something and you think, okay, you know, let me try again. Let me do it again. Um, but instead of seeing it as failure, if you see that as part of the process, then, you know, it really shouldn't bother you. Right. Although, you know, I mean, I, I teach workshops on, on this and some people take to it and absolutely love it and get hooked on it as I did and other people absolutely hate it. It's very much a matter of, you know, what your artistic <laughs> temperament is and they say, oh, this has been the most frustrating thing I've never, ever done. I will never do this again. And I say, okay, well, now you know. <laughs> well, absolutely. So, and that's kind of what I was getting at too about, by, by creating like. There is a finiteness to working in chemogram and working camera photography. Instead, you can start over again and make a series of different things. Right. Uh, but yes, unlike painting and drawing, where it's like, well, you can keep yeah. endlessly. Right. Maybe it'll never be finished. Uh, but yeah, it'll force you to be finished. <laughs> you can start over <laughs> and again. And sometimes rather quickly, yes. <laughs> but the, but that's I mean, the single piece. But then, you know, it's, I mean, you can do just an endless. I mean, you can, you know, there's no limit to the number of tries that you can make, right? Yeah. So that's never finished. But yes, each particular piece can sometimes just, you know, head towards disaster very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and so where are you heading right now? Are you still working in chemogram? Are you, are, where, where are you, are you, 
back um, to more traditional printmaking? What, what's your focus at the moment? Well, so before the pandemic, I was working with another process, which is again an alternative photographic process, and that's uh, a combination of um, two 19th century processes. One is the cliche vert, and uh, the other one uh, is um, bleach etching, more than sage. Uh, but for that, uh, although I do not use a camera, uh, I do make a negative, and my negative uh, was actually a drawing, which I would take to the darkroom. So I would use a darkroom in Gowanus and, uh, you know, make the negative there. I mean, you know, make use my drawing as a negative to make a gelatin silver print, which I would then take home and do the next part, the mordensage, which is, you know, in fact, what you're doing is you're kind of destroying the image and reconfiguring it in various ways. Um, but since they closed, I haven't really been able to do that. I don't have a dark room at home. Maybe it's time that I set one up. Um, <laughs> Uh, but so, you know, I, that has kind of been on hold. And so what I've been planning is um, in that process, you know, you move from a static state. So, you know, I start with a drawing, uh, then I turn it into a, a gelatin silver print, uh, and then it goes through this incredibly tumultuous, you know, kind of destructive creative process where it either succeeds or it fails. But, you know, it's this process of tremendous change, and then I end up with another static state. Uh, where I wait for the image to stabilize and then I scan it and output it as a, um, a final um, image, uh, you know, usually an um, archival pigment print. So what I've been really uh, getting interested in is working with that in-between process, you know, in the state where the image is just, you know, changing incredibly fast and somehow uh, documenting that either through video or through stop motion and, you know, kind of taking it into, uh, into another realm, uh, maybe into animation. Um, but, you know, I haven't really been able to do that. As soon as I can go back to the darkroom, I think I'll, uh, I'll do, um, I'll start working on that. So, you know, in the meantime, it has been just, uh, it's just been a bunch of sketching, you know, simple things that I can do, you know, with a pencil and paper and just throwing ideas uh, down. And then, and then a lot of teaching, I have to say, you know, my time has been really consumed with this kind of transition from teaching in a classroom to, to teaching behind the screen, you oh. know, processes that are intensely, you know, physical. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's, yeah, a, that's, that's exactly what you have to do. Uh, I mean, this is what you have to pivot. You have to do um, what's necessary to keep going. And that it actually leads me right to where I wanted to go with you is that because, it, because you've been so incredibly successful as an artist. Um, I, and I think one of the measures of that success is the ability to share your talent and your knowledge and, and skill with others by teaching. And you've been very busy teaching and drawing and uh, teaching drawing and watercolor and painting online and in person. Uh, I know one of the places in 92nd Street yep. Y, is mm -hmm. that right? Yep. And uh, among other places. So what led you to teaching? Um, you know, it's, um, I mean, teaching is one of those things where, um, it's, it's a very, it's a very intensely, I mean, it's a very gratifying process. And I just think that the kinds of things that make you a better teacher, that help you to be a better professional, uh, also, uh, you know, uh, they help you to be a better person. That's what I found is because, you know, it requires a lot of patience and, compassion and, um, you know, just, you, you really, I mean, you have to see things from the perspective of somebody else in order to be effective at, 
uh, at teaching and, you know, those kinds of things, I think, you know, just make me generally a, you know, better, more pleasant <laughs> person. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, that you come also to a point in life where you have, you know, like you've been absorbing things. And I think we always absorb things through others. We're not just like, you know, as uh, Harold Bloom used to say, Adam early in the morning where, <laughs> you know, it, it's really, you know, we live in a cultural context. And, you know, over the years, I've gotten so many things from mentors and, you know, other people. And it's very gratifying to get to a point in life where you are doing the same. You're in that position where you are, you know, giving back to others. Uh, but also, I don't... I think there was a time in my life, and there are times where I feel kind of overwhelmed with my teaching schedule, as, and I see it as something that competes with my own time and my own work. Uh, but then I, I think the way that I teach is I, I teach in a way that also enriches my own practice, and so it becomes kind of a collaboration. You know, I. Uh, I work on processes and, you know, with students, which are also interesting to me. So we make discoveries together. And so there is this flow between the classroom and the studio that just, you know, by now feels very natural. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, I think it's a really wonderful way to, um, you know, as far as having a job, <laughs> I think it's about as good as it gets for me. That's wonderful. I, I tell you, you know, it's it's all about connectivity right now in many ways, and uh, teaching is. Like say I, I I'm one myself who came through an apprentice program. I'll say, in many ways, people know me. I'm still apprenticing in this life. Uh, we all are. Yeah, we're always. I'm a lifelong learner, as I say, uh, and I think it's wonderful that you're so generous. And and ha but things you not only are you generous, you you have the ability to connect, which I think is really important. Uh, which is indicative of your students and, and, and how often and how much you are in demand. Uh, so in this online era you kind of alluded to earlier, um, what's, how successful have you found teaching online and, and creating that connectivity and you know landing those thoughts on your students and having that verified? Uh, are you able to connect with them? I mean, I mean, I know this is a universal problem, or challenge, I'll say, not problems so much, but challenge um, by not being in the same room. And art, uh, as in life, is very experiential. Uh, yes. So that are they able? To, are you? Are you? And are they able to absorb the concepts and execute what you're teaching? Um, okay, so you know, it really depends on whom. Um, I I work with a very um, kind of broad range of students in terms of age, particularly, uh, but also, you know, kind of levels of um, levels of experience. So, you know, I have found that um, with little kids, you know, I'm about to do a residency, you know, in February with first graders, and I honestly kind of dread it, because, you know, for little kids, I think it can be a really hard experience. Um, for grown-ups, um, it's a very different thing. You know, for artists with disabilities, it can be a very hard experience, you know, kind of having, uh, you know, all the inputs that you would have in a studio, all that kind of like the physical and, you know, the sensual, you know, whatever surrounds you to be taken away um, can be very hard. So, you know, for beginners, it's much harder than it is for people who are advanced. Uh, it has worked extremely well with my advanced students where, uh, you know, uh, like the teaching really consists in critique mostly. So, you know, they're making work uh, in real time. 
Um, and, you know, from time to time, I kind of peek behind their bags, but, you know, they're sending me as they're painting, they're sending me images, we put the images up on the screen, and we discuss them, right? So, so you know, and, and so with that, it has been, um, it's been great, it's been really wonderful. In a way, it has almost been better than in the classroom. Um, for some things, actually, it has been bad. It has been amazing when you teach perspective. I have amazing, you know, just so precise control over what people are seeing. I can see exactly on my screen what their point of view is in relation oops, to, to, to what I'm showing them. And, um, you know, so for some limited things, it has been uh, even better than uh, in real life. But, you know, it's, it's obviously not the same. We've all made the transition. In the beginning, it was... Uh, it almost seemed like an impossible task. I mean, I remember the first time I would do it, I thought, you know, this is, how is this going to work? This is just absurd. Um, but by now, it's, uh, it, it feels really seamless. And I'm able to incorporate a lot more uh, material into uh, the teaching that I wasn't doing before. So, for example, because you're at the computer and, you know, like Zoom is, you know, it's kind of like a medium, not medium, but a platform that's... Um, made for presentations, it works great for that. So I'm able to incorporate a lot of um, historical references. So, you know, we kind of like dwell into, you know, art history a lot. And, you know, they always have my students, I provide them context for their work in terms of contemporary work, historical work. Um, so that has been great. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, the limitation is obviously everybody's individual environment. You know, I have no control over that. I can go in into an institution, set up a classroom in the best way that I think will work for people. You know, I can't really do that with people's homes. You know, I have no control over the kind of light that they have, you know, the kind of, you know, so, so it's... Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, what can I tell you? It has worked. Actually, it has worked a lot better than um, I, I thought. And, you know, my mentor, you know, Doug Collins, um, when I was starting to teach, I think the first week when I had to make the transition from the physical classroom to uh, the virtual one, and I said, how is this going to work? This is so hopeless. And he said, oh, you know, I just saw somebody, you know, like teaching swimming lessons online. So just remember that. And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, if you can teach swimming, you can teach art. I can do it. And um, yeah, it has worked. It has actually worked quite well. And also, um, the wonderful thing is that... Um, I mean, yes, it does restrict access for some people because not everybody has access to technology. That has been a big issue when I've worked with uh, the elderly. Uh, but, you know, I also have students now who are in California, in Canada, you know, so in Europe. So it does open up access, you know, to others, like physical space becomes um, a non-issue. So... What are your feelings about physical space virtually about exhibiting art? Exhibiting art? Um, so, because artists have for a long time, you have your own webpage, many artists have had their own webpage, but uh, you see galleries now going online more, and also museums, of course, are doing walking, walking tours of their wings and special exhibitions. So, I was curious if you have seen or have had yourself any success of virtual exhibitions. Um, so, you know, I don't think the two will ever be interchangeable experiences, but I think we are ready now for, um, you know, encountering artwork 
in just the virtual realm because we've been already we've, we've been doing it for such a long time I mean I know the work of so many artists that I've never ever seen in person and I kind of consider myself to be familiar with their body of work even though you know all I've seen is like you know kind of you know jpegs of their work so um yeah, I, I I think that's a great thing. I think it has pushed galleries and museums, you know, to work harder on presenting artwork, which, you know, let's face it, you know, not everybody has the resources, you know, to travel to, you know, like all the art fairs and, you know, see work. So I think that's, that's a really wonderful thing. And, you know, I know there has been some resistance, you know, in certain quarters because the institutions are, you know, by definition, a little conservative um, and, you know, they kind of, cater to their client base, all the collectors have not been thrilled, you know, <laughs> to spend a lot of money on, you know, a virtual uh, image. But, um, you know, I think I think that that has been a positive thing. I mean, if it wasn't for the circumstances that obviously lead us to have to do that, um, yeah, I think it's a great thing. Um, have, let me see, have I, have I myself had success with that? I don't think... I mean, I, I've been part of um, online exhibitions um, before the pandemic hit. Uh, and, you know, I've had people contact me, you know, after those. Um, and, um, you know, so no, I think, it's a, I think it's a great thing. I think artists should really um, welcome, you know, anything that allows them to um, show their work. You know, yeah, I think you're going right to where I agree with you in the sense of that, you know, I think the engagement is there with the public. Like we've primed them for a very long yeah. time with, like I said, artists have had their own web pages since yeah. the mid nineties, um, HTML wise, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I remember, I remember that those days, do you? And, uh, and up through the, you know, the WordPress and the fancy, whatever you have these days that, to, to augment the bells and whistles, so to speak. Um, but I think what might be interesting to maybe note is that there is a bit of resistance in the collectors, but I also think that there's a little resistance from the artists as well. Um, perhaps being represented by a gallery or certain galleries isn't, they're not so dependent anymore because of this um, do-it-yourself culture yes. that has been, uh, I'll just say, encouraged uh, by the pandemic, if there's a silver lining to it, yes. right? Yes, yeah. So I hope, I hope perhaps... That'll mean more money in artists' pockets. Um, unfortunately, it calls on the artist to be more of their own salesperson. Yeah, and um, we're not good at that, Aaron. That's why we need you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. Everyone, go to evenaklova.com. Um, but ser seriously, though, it, that is true, though. I mean, I, I don't, and this is I'm making sure I make this point, is that no one's trying to replace a gallery. Right, um, right. But there are... Um, Again, going back to what you're teaching, way there's resourcefulness and flexibility to be had to yes. create access to work yes. that maybe you would not have experienced otherwise. Yes, and I think that's really wonderful. And perhaps this pandemic, if there's any anything else that came out good about it, is that we have educated entire probably that senior generation who probably. I know Facebook became uncool when your dad and your grandpa got on, but but now dad and grandpa and your mom can Zoom and, yeah. and, and they're a little more savvy. And let's face it, those people have money. Or at least they have more money than the people who are a lot younger most yes. of the time. No, absolutely. Um, and, their, and their interests. And, and if you're not going out because you're quarantining or you're just trying to be safe, uh, let's face it, 
people spend way too much money online and uh, let's hope they put money into <laughs> the do-it-yourself small business support local yes. artist movement. Uh, so hopefully that can bring people uh, hopefully to this podcast and also people to uh, the artists um, who are deserving of their patronage. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think anything that enlarges the audience for art um, is, is a good thing. It's to be encouraged and, you know, it's nothing will replace the experience of, you know, going to a gallery, a museum, a, you know, a storefront, whatever, and, and encountering the work in person, you know, that will always be there. Uh, but, you know, I'm also looking at my teaching. You know, I know that when the Y opens back up, um, my students will go back to their classes. But, you know, my students who are, um, you know, in other parts of the country or, you know, overseas, you know, I'll keep seeing them online. And so, you know, that only increases the access for some people. And I think it's the same thing with, um, you know, I don't think like the Met all of a sudden will empty out and nobody will go there because they can see the work online. No, it's um, it's just something in addition to. Well, you haven't been traveling to the Y. You haven't been going to the Met. Um, you've been going around Inwood for the most part uh, recently, because I've seen you about, and uh, and as most of us have gone very short distances, perhaps to the supermarket and back for a while, um, I'm just wondering now, and also you can talk about, because you're a longtime resident here as well, I'm curious, um, this neighborhood of northern Manhattan has a lot of character. Um, it's what, what, I'm curious what drew you here uh, as a person because that's where it all comes from. Uh, and also, if this crazy uptown world, I'm curious how it finds its way into your work, if it does at all. Um, so I, the first time I um, saw New York, the first time I came to New York was in 2003. And I will never forget, you know, like driving on the George Washington Bridge and, you know, ending up in Washington Heights. And I thought... <gasps> This is the most wonderful place on earth. I mean, so far I, I'd lived in, you know, I'd lived in the Midwest. That's where I went to school. And I always thought, you know, where, like, where is the town? Where is the city? You know, I hadn't, you know, because these are very small places and it's very different from, you know, my experience coming from Europe where things are kind of, you know, they're kind of dense. Even if you live in a small city, it still feels kind of crowded and there are people everywhere. And so the first time that I saw New York, I saw Washington Heights and I thought, this is it, you know, like finally I've arrived in America, you know, this is where, you know, I want to be always. And I've... Um, like that feeling has never changed you know I kind of think of you know New York as my boyfriend because you know I'm so in love <laughs> still you know after all this time it's uh, um and it's um <clears throat> I mean it's the neighborhood is extremely it's lively it's vibrant and at the same time, if you want some solace, I mean, my uh, I live on Simon and the back door of my building is on Payson like two minutes from the park in Woodhill Park and I go into the park and maybe I'll see three people walking their dogs. That's it. And that's in the and that's, you know, I mean I know people don't think that it's in the heart of Manhattan, but you know, it is in Manhattan. And I think it's a pretty amazing combination that you don't find anywhere else in um in the city. So it's um I think it's a it's a pretty special place. I, you know, worry sometimes, Aaron, that you promote it so much. And I think, oh, my God, it's going to get so overrun. You know, we should, we should really keep this a secret. It's not in our interest. Um, 
We're going to cut this interview short right now. <laughs> Matter of fact, we're never going to publish it. Um, well, I, I, I listen. It's as anything else. I think it's about the people here too. Yes. Um, the, the many boyfriends, perhaps, uh, or or the other attributes of your boyfriend. Um, <laughs> that like, and that's that's. And this is the reason, as you know, is that the reason why I started it in what artworks is because of the people in Northern Manhattan. Yes. I mean, I was here. Also, I came here in two thousand three. And uh, oddly enough, um, different boat from the Midwest, Cincinnati. <laughs> and I also fell in love with it, and uh, particularly in Inwood. And I was like, wow, there's so many incredible people yeah. who are my neighbors. And I'm walking down the street, and I'm hearing jazz and opera, and I'm seeing people paint in the park, and there's plays on the corner, and it's it's awesome. And then I'm, and then we all, we all have to go downtown or out of town to work. And I was just fascinated by the fact that wow, there's just but there's so many wonderful, crazy, talented people here. And the fact that we have no performing arts center, no gallery, yeah. no um, again traditional forms. And so, uh, don't be mad at me. I've used you know <laughs> the, the, the the neighborhood itself as a resource and a canvas, if you will. Yes. To hopefully create opportunities for art, be it the film festival, our galleries that we've had where we're actually here. For those of you who don't know, we're on Dykeman Street right now, as I said earlier in the podcast. But this is a very high traffic strip. It's like a, it's pretty much the thoroughfare yeah. of Inwood. Um, and uh, we're what a wonderful place that supports the arts and supports the community. Um, and I think that is something to celebrate. Um whether you move here and you can afford the prices of the rent or the co-ops, that's an entirely different story for another podcast. But those who are, or are here and who are still here during this pandemic, I think that says something. And I think that's really important for people to know you and all the other people we've had on on air uh, throughout the, uh, this pandemic and, and way after, we hope, that um, they d- you deserve to make a living. You deserve to be known and hopefully um, – they can support you from afar and not move here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, don't move here. <laughs> don't move here, but come visit. But yes, come visit, definitely right? come visit. It's an amazing neighborhood. You know, it just compared to any other neighborhood in, you know, and I, I mean, I haven't really lived elsewhere. I didn't really want to live elsewhere, you know, in New York, but every other neighborhood that I kind of visited and, you know, this one really feels like, like a neighborhood, you know, it feels like a community, whereas other places, you know, don't to me. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure I'm biased, but you you know what I mean? It's like you see, you see families, you see multi-generational families here, whereas in other parts of New York, it's like, you know, demographically, it's, oh, it's young kids, you know, other parts of Brooklyn or it's this, you know, this really feels like a proper neighborhood to me. It's like, it feels similar to what I uh, came from, even though, you know, that's Eastern Europe, very different, uh, you know, in every way, but it still has that you know, sense of, um, you know, I see like the grandmothers and the little kids and the teenagers and, you know, like everybody's hanging out together and it feels, it feels wonderful. So maybe we should rebrand as the Eastern Europe of Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, um, you, you're, you have such a wide diaspora of work and what you're working on. Um, we know you have put off some things until later, like you said. Are there any like long-term career goal projects you have um, for visions for uh, in the next, you know, when, when you're able? I mean, 
aside from getting a dark room in your bathroom or going or, or breaking into a place in Gowanus, um, even beyond that, are there some long-term projects that you have in your wheelhouse you're planning to tackle? Um, you know, honestly, I don't, Aaron. I'm the kind of person, uh, you know, that I don't really, I don't really make plans. And um, you know, I mean, now's a good time to say, here's why. Look around. Um, You've been a little busy. I, I mean, yeah, I, I've been a little busy, and and yeah, I, I don't know. I just, um, I let things happen, and um, yeah. I don't know. I guess you just have to invite me again. I know you want to get it out all now, but, you know, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> no, it doesn't because I think if anything you said earlier, it's about the process, right? Yes. And you, you are where you are now. And yes, you'll exactly. And where you will be when you're there. Yep. I think it's perfect to end on, actually. <laughs> so, Eva, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you, and uh, thank you so much for coming in tonight. Oh, thanks, Aaron. As always, a real joy. Well, um, is there a place where people could go to learn more about your work? Um, well, I, I would have to say that, you know, it, my website, which I've not updated in several years, so, you know, that would probably, you know, give me um, the incentive to, you know, get, get some work done on it. And yes. Great. Well, and it's evanikolova.com, yes. correct? Excellent. So listeners, you can uh, visit her there and we'll also put that link up on our on-air uh, webpage. So thanks again, Eva, for joining me on this Artist Spotlight episode of In What Artworks On Air, where we meet the musicians, uh, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes who make their home here in uh, Eastern, no, I'm kidding, Upper Manhattan. <laughs> if you have a moment, please show us some love right now by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Uh, real deep thanks to our friends here at 809 on Dykeman uh, and Inwood for hosting us, and also to HeightSites.com for our local uptown promotional support. Uh, please be sure to follow us on social media at Inwood Artworks to keep up with all that we do. That includes the film festivals, the Filmworks Alfresco, pop-up art galleries, and uh, live performances, and so much more. You can support On Air, which is a free program, and all our programming by making a tax-free donation at InwoodArtworks.nyc backslash donate. In What Artworks On Air is made possible with funding from the NYC and Company Foundation with support from Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer and the NISCA Electronic Media Film Grant Program in partnership with Wave Farm Media Arts Assistance Fund and the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Aaron Sims for In What Artworks On Air. <laughs>